0: Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
0: Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to com or visiting this episode's description.
2: Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> Welcome back to Girl in the Gov, the podcast. Um, exiting, not, not even exiting. exiting, still gliding through crisis mode over here. I am coming off the cutest little stomach flu. Samantha has her Wi-Fi stolen from her and it's just been, it's been a saga this week and it's a late episode, but she's here and she's ready for you. So here we are. She is ready
0: to rumble. I feel like I say that a lot. And I don't know, what is that from? Is that, like, from, like, a baseball game, like, It's from, like,
2: no, it's from, like, boxing.
0: Boxing? Yeah. I don't think I've ever watched boxing
2: a day in my life. Where do I pick these things up? It's just a cultural reference, you know? But hopefully you guys have gotten merch because that came out last week. And, like, last time, it'll be a 21-day campaign with this merch. So... After the 21 days, make sure you get your orders in and then they will all ship out to you and then we will all be just rocking our Girl on the Gov merch being cute. But there's, again, new options and then we also opened up all of our former designs from our last merch launch that are also available. So if you missed out on that one, then you can go get um, an old design, a new design, both, whatever whatever you're feeling. Go get your Uh, merch. Including the when and don't vote them out, which,
0: guys, we got a letter request from you guys over the last... You guys, you guys, you guys, LOL. From, can I? Guys, I'm not well. The Wi Fi goes out one morning and it is throwing me for a freaking loop. Anyways, but we did get a lot of requests for that one to be brought back to the barnyard. What?
2: <laughs> what? <laughs> Brought okay, back I, to the barnyard, but I do want
0: to encourage everyone to go get their merch as well. And here's the thing: you guys sent us epic pics and tagged us last time. Mm-hmm. We did a little merch moment, so please do that again. A.K.A. We freaking love it. We wanna, we wanna see it. We wanna share it. Let us know if we can post it too. We love. Wow, I'm singing you now. This is really an adventure. We didn't know we were going down. Anyways. We love to see it. And wait, Maddie, what's your what's your favorite merch item?
2: Mine is the helping politics find new friends. I love both of them. Well, there's three actually. There's three color options. There's white with the black and the pink. There's wait. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't speak. But I have stomach flu. Uh, Someone
0: please someone please send a
2: no like um, we're both not okay (laughs) yeah a stretcher we're doing our called? a stretcher yeah 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. honestly just get me a coffin (gasps) at this point um (laughs) I like the black helping politics find new friends with the red and the pink design but I love the Um, we'll keep you updated one too the green we love is that one your fave
0: I think that one's my fave but I've been, I think that's my fave design too, so I really like the black and pink as well. So I might like that one's just such a toss up. We'll just flip a coin and it's one of those two at the moment. I do really like all the other options as well. Like there's just no bad option, you know what I mean? It's more just like what's what's your style? What's your vibe of the day?
2: And it's like more just like which one are you gonna be buying first? That that too. Because oh, I'm too. about to make my second my second order here soon. And wait
0: to that point, we have launched a Pinterest. Yes. Now yeah, this is a bit
2: of a this is a tail curveball. This is a tail
0: curveball. See, oh my god, we're so baseball these days. We are. This is a baseball podcast. This is- <laughs> this is a baseball podcast. It's fine. So much baseball. So much baseball. But anyways, so it all started because. I was thinking that with merch, we could show some really cu- cute ways to wear it, to style it, whether you're doing something a little more loungewear at home vibe to streetwear to whatever. We know I love a little fashion moment, so honestly, as a little little Sunday project that ended up being a more full-blown strategic thing, which I will explain now. I noticed that like a lot of people use Pinterest to plan out and mood boards for their week or their month and things that they like want to do, want to accomplish, etc. And then I was thinking about our action items and our IG lives and our podcast episodes and how if you are mood boarding your week and your month or maybe you do it every day. I don't know. I don't I don't know your life. I don't know your schedule. But I do know that if you can put it on a to-do list or put it on a mood board, might make it an easier reminder to do it. So... We want to make sure that those action items and getting civically engaged can come to you. If there is a type of how-to that you guys are interested in, whether it's us creating more of like a how-to-register-to-vote graphic or how-to-protest safely, like whatever that is that would be helpful to you guys, let us know because we're happy to create those things and continue to build out different boards for those as well.
2: I love that. And I love adding political learning, political action items to to your mood board, to your, what's it called? What did we call it that one time? Your political regimen or what was it? Routine? routine. Political routine, add it to that mood board, we love. But we can get into our interview because it is an exciting one and one that we absolutely loved doing. Before we do, I will just also push out there that we have an internship available for this summer and fall. So if you are a college student and can get college credit for an internship, then go to girlinthegov.com slash careers to learn about our all the things internship. It's social media, marketing, research. So go check it out. If you are not a college student or you're not looking for an internship at the moment, then you can join our brand ambassador program. There's no requirements for that. We got resume boosters, networking opportunities, and just a community of amazing young ladies looking to have some political impact. So come join. But I think that's it. Shall we introduce our guest?
0: Oh, we shall. And I have been chomping at the bit the both of us have to not only have done this interview but to release it because today we are chatting with jasmine beach frere and she is running for congress in north carolina north carolina district 11 to be specific and this might ring a bell because whose district is that currently madison kothmore so, yep you heard it Ew. here you heard it here probably not first like maddie said so Nonetheless, this conversation is all about North Carolina politics, what's at stake, Jasmine's campaign, all of that jazz. So, ha, all of that jazz, get it? Anyways, let's get into it. Here's Jasmine. Hi, well, got to get into it. You are running for Congress in no other than North Carolina's 11th district. There's so much conversation that we're going to get into on this district. But before we get into the nitty gritty, even some of, I would say, the almost gossipy points about this district. (laughs) Can you give us the lay of the actual land? Like, what are the demographics? What's the district like? Voter issues. Paint it for us.
3: Absolutely. Well, first of all, I am blessed to live in one of the most beautiful parts of the country. So just to visualize Western North Carolina, we're home to the Great Smokies, the Blue Ridge Mountains. Everywhere you look, you just see the beautiful mountains. And we're in the western third of North Carolina, So I'm in Buncombe County right now in Asheville, which is our big city in the West, and drive five minutes in any direction and you start to see the just beautiful farmlands and start to gain elevation if you head in a lot of directions. It's an an incredible part of, of the country just in terms of the natural resources and natural beauty here. And in terms of the people here, you know, it's a place where folks do right by each other. We look out for our neighbors, have a lot of respect for people's sort of freedom and people being who they are. You know, the There, the roots of NASCAR are in Western North Carolina. There is a a long history of, of bootlegging here and you still feel kind of all of that in the air, you know, and, and in terms of issues on the ground, you know, we have, I have knocked doors in every County across the district. And then I've been serving in local elected office since 2016. And the issues that no matter where you are, people are bringing up are broadband access, which is so critical. Yeah. It's really something we need to treat as a, you know, as a utility right now. And if you don't have it, it makes so many parts of life hard. Our our area has been hit really hard by the opiate crisis. So many people have experienced the heartbreak of that. And that's something people talk about a lot. Creating jobs across sectors that you can actually raise a family on is a big one. And then, at, you know, preserving the legacy of the farms here, just incredible family farms and supporting our farming community in how we move forward. And that's everything from, you know, the sort of farm to table stuff that happens here to preparing for extreme climate events and how the farming community can really be an important part of climate change response efforts. So those are some of the big ones. Other ones are access to rural healthcare and making sure we have strong pre-K and strong K-12 education. But it's an incredible part of the country and and a beautiful one. And I'm excited to get to do a deep dive with you all because sometimes from a distance, folks can rush to a lot of judgments and assumptions. And it's great to get to talk in a lot more detail about what's actually happening in people's lives and on the ground.
2: Totally. It's so important to kind of take away all the like nasty political stuff. Clearly lots of work to do. And I'm glad you have all those priorities. Also never been, but yeah, we're we're doing a trip. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, um, come on. Absolutely would love to go, but unfortunately to kind of switch gears (laughs) into the more like just political rhetoric, the nasty stuff that we see just on our day to day is (laughs) specifically about a certain man, Mark Meadows. So can you kind of give us a lay of the land of like who he is, what's the 411 and how does he tie into your district?
3: Absolutely. So Mark Meadows represented the district through several terms before he basically abandoned post and went to work in Trump's White House, leaving this our district unrepresented for a period of time. And then Madison Cawthorn was elected. Of course, Meadows has been in the headlines a lot recently for the role he appears to have played in the January 6th insurrection, and then even more recently for what appears to have been practices of voter fraud where he was registering to vote at an address here in Western North Carolina he did not live at, even as he was promoting sort of the big lie about election fraud. Nice. You know, it's, I think it's one thing that's important to note is that in 2010, North Carolina's districts were heavily gerrymandered, both around partisan and racial lines. And the courts have subsequently struck out those districts, but it took about eight to nine years of moving through the court system to happen. So Meadows was elected into a heavily gerrymandered district, a district that had been drawn not to reflect Western North Carolina, but rather to elect uh, a Republican like Meadows. So the district that he was drawn into, actually the most prominent feature of it in terms of gerrymandering was that it cracked, which is one of the terms you see in, in, in the yeah. cases around this, it cracked the city of Asheville in half and split the city between the 11th district, which Meadows was in, and the 10th district and basically completely dissipated the political voice and the and the voting voice of the, the part of the district where the greatest sort of density of population is. So it's important to understand that his election happened in that context. And what we have been moving for towards in North Carolina, especially in the last five years, is fairer and fairer versions of congressional mm-hmm. maps. We had new district lines in the 2020 cycle. And in the last year, we've had about four versions of the maps, but we finally settled on a court-ordered version of the map that is the fairest map we've seen in North Carolina in quite some time. Oh, and all that gets to you know what I think is it, the, the important takeaway with Meadows. One is he became significantly more extreme as he was in office and then through his affiliations with the Trump administration, but also that that is out of sync with and out of step with the values and the people and the priorities of this region. And that's one of the problems with gerrymandering.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I have a question totally. too, about like Western North Carolina versus the rest of the state. Like, is there a difference? Like is one area known to be more liberal than the other. Is there some sort of overview of what North Carolina actually looks like? Because I know that like, Every single presidential election, North Carolina is especially talked about like, oh, yeah. it's going to be purple. It's going to be blue and like all of those conversations. But yeah. then what does that actually look like across the state?
3: That's a great question. I mean, the biggest debate in the state is barbecue, East West barbecue. I, I <laughs> I'm actually I,
0: hungry now. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> no, me too. I'm like, um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Will be so, the deciding factor. I like I, will, I, will I like it.
2: Like,
3: All of it. Every kind of barbecue. (laughs) North Carolina is a really politically balanced state in a lot of ways. And, you know, that's been sort of one of the great arguments for why we need to make sure that our congressional districts and our house districts reflect that reality we are often right on the bubble in terms of presidential races and senate races and you know as as you look at the up the state historically the western part of the state has trended a bit more conservative in some ways and at the same time there's just a lot that's changing on the ground you know we see for instance there's a four county region here in western north carolina where we're just seeing really, signif- really significant numbers of people moving here and population growth. And 2022 will be really the first election that captures what that looks like politically. So I think part of what makes North Carolina so exciting and dynamic, why I love being part of North Carolina politics, is that we start from a basis of being a pretty mixed and politically balanced state at the state level and then you throw in a lot of factors of ongoing change and churn. And, you know, we will continue, I think, to play a really important role in federal level elections. And then, of course, all of that also shows up at the state and local levels as well. Totally.
0: Okay. Interesting, like, thinking about it. I'm still thinking about barbecue a little bit, I'll be honest. But... Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, we can spend we can spend a whole hour
2: talking about barbecue. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes.
0: My, wa-
3: my wife, Megan, actually smoked ribs and chicken last night. So I'm excited to go home to those oh. tonight.
2: That sounds so good. literally. Yeah, sign me up. okay. <laughs>
3: she's she's gotten really really good at it. It's pretty what am amazing I eating for
2: lunch today.
0: But that aside, like thinking about the maps and where things have landed, there has been lots of discussion around good old Madison Cawthorn and him going after a district he wasn't previously in, trying to you know strategize how he could win based off how the districts landed. Can you give us a little bit of I guess the four one one, if you will, on what happened there and why this guy is still in the mix.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I'll I'll try to do sort of a quick tour of this that gets us up to the present moment. So Cawthorn was elected in 2020 election cycle, largely on Trump's coattails and largely as an unknown quantity. And by January 6, he had made clear to everyone exactly how extreme and dangerous his politics were. And what he had also made clear was that building his political brand is a top priority of his far and above more of a priority than representing the people of Western North Carolina, and that's really what you saw drive this the behavior that happened during the the map and district lines being drawn for him. So this fall, for a period of time, we had a map in place that was drawn by the legislature that made the district we're in here significantly more favorable to Democrats. And Cawthorn got scared basically and announced that he was leaving this district to go run in an newly created district to the east of here that was deep, deep, deep red and included part of the Charlotte media market. And a lot of the interpretations were that, one, he wanted to run in a district he knew was safe, where he didn't feel in any way politically threatened. He, in that process, essentially sort of forced the Speaker of the House out of that race. So there was sort of a lot of Republican insider baseball stuff happening. And then he's been very clear in telegraphing that he wants to run for governor of North Carolina when he's old enough to do that. So getting into that Charlotte media market was perceived as something that um, he was attracted to as well. The courts threw those maps out and they ended up settling on, again, a set of maps that are much fairer for the whole state. And within that, our district kind of settled a little bit between where it was in 2020 and where it was in that intermediate period. And it's still more favorable to Democrats than it was. We see this as a tough end, very winnable race. And the district that Cawthorn had been running in disappeared. It no longer existed in the maps. So he was sort of then faced a situation where he was either going to run against a Republican incumbent in the primary or come back home to the district he represents. We have to pause here and just say that it's very strange to be having a conversation where someone would be running in any district other than the one that they represent. Okay. But such yeah. is Cawthorn's approach to politics, that it really is about the opportunism, chasing opportunities to build his brand. And and in the process, he's ve- he's been explicit about a vision of electing far right extremists in every district across the state and doing everything he can to champion and further the, the far right agenda that sort of comes out of the, the Trump circles of, of the Republican mm-hmm. Party. And that brings us to today, where I'm running in the Democratic primary. We're feeling incredible about our momentum as we head into primary season here. And Cawthorn is running in a very crowded, contested Republican primary field where the extent to which he has alienated people within his own party is absolutely on display. And we shall see what comes of that primary. But do expect that he will probably prevail within it.
2: Yeah. Well, we want to know a little bit more about you and your resume and all of that. Can you kind of tell us like what your political journey looks like and also like what ultimately was the deciding factor for you to
3: run in this race? Absolutely. Well, I was raised in North Carolina by my mom, Martha. She's a single mom and she put herself through nursing school and she was also just always really involved Um, in service and community and also really involved in politics. So I kind of grew up volunteering on different campaigns with her and kind of getting that very early exposure to on the ground politics through her. That's awesome. Yeah, which left a a pretty big impression on me. Sort of fast forward into my adulthood and I am a minister in the United Church of Christ. So I have ended up going to divinity school and and pursuing that. I, I launched an organization called the Campaign for Southern Equality. We are based here in Asheville, and we work in Western North Carolina and across the state and across the South for LGBTQ equality, both under the law, but also in lived experience. And throughout that work, you know, it was always involved with politics at the local, state, and national level, volunteering on campaigns, and certainly very Im- involved on the policy level. And it was kind of a convergence of that that led me to running for office. On a very personal level, I have you know, known the experience of being the beneficiary of policies that are meant to lift people up. I went to North Carolina public schools and it opened all kinds of doors in my life, but also being the target of policies that are meant to demean and exclude people growing up as a Gay person in North Carolina. I grew up under the the long shadow of a, a sort of lineage of laws and policies that were meant to send a very clear message that, you know, that LGBTQ people weren't weren't quite welcome here. And we've mm-hmm. done a lot to change those laws and that work continues. But I just just in a very personal way, understand that and, and yeah. want to make sure that we are always building political tables where there's room for everyone and certainly room for people who've been impacted by policy in those kinds of ways. So I ran for office for the first time in 2016 for county commissioner, which is local elected office here um, I was reelected in 2020 and it's been just an extraordinary honor and it continues to be to serve in that role doing policy making at the county level and it, it is that experience in a lot of ways the experience of working on policies to expand pre-K access or respond to the opiate crisis or expand broadband and doing it in a way that has been about bringing politically diverse groups of people together Democrats Republicans unaffiliated folks impacted folks to figure out solutions that will actually work on the ground. That's a big piece of what motivated me to run for Congress. Those issues are exactly the issues that are federal priorities for our district. The other huge piece, of course, is that absolutely need and deserve real leadership in DC from our district. We need someone who cares about the people of Western North Carolina, who will fight for the people of Western North Carolina. And we absolutely need to do everything within our power to defeat the kind of very dangerous extremism that because of folks like Mark Meadows and Madison Cawthorn, you know, has has become a palpable force in Western North Carolina right now that we have to contend with. So all of those things led the de- to the decision to run, which became sort of a crystal clear one as we watched the terrible events of January 6th unfold and, and understood that Cawthorn had played such a, a, a significant role in, in the escalation of that.
0: Totally. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, makes sense to me. This feels like when the shoe fits, the shoe fits a great yeah. role for you but I do want to learn a little bit more about the role of county commissioner. And that is where we get into our I-have-a-stupid-question segment. What (laughs) is a county commissioner? Can you walk us through what that job entails?
3: Absolutely. Well, first of all, being a county commissioner is incredibly fun, and it's always very exciting to get to talk about it. County commission in North Carolina is sort of like a city council, but at the county level. So in the case of Buncombe County, we have seven county commissioners who are elected, and our job is to set policy um, and budget at the county level, and also to oversee sort of the administration of county government. And that is everything from North Carolina, North Carolina counties that were on the front line of pandemic response during COVID-19. So that was everything from setting local policy there to making sure that our public health department was scaling up in ways to be um, as responsive as possible to emergency services. So when there's a, you know, we had a f- bad flooding this past fall due to Tropical Storm Fred and the county services were out all through the night working with people on storm rescue and recovery operations to much more day-to-day work around some of the issues we've been talking about already. How do we expand broadband? How do we support the expansion of early childhood options for folks? How do we keep building the kind of robust 21st century economy uh, that's going to mean that people can actually Get jobs you can raise a family on and and stay put, rather than having to go somewhere else for those jobs. So to me, it's a very exciting set of policy issues. And in in the first term that I served, our county commission was a bipartisan body, and so it was you know we were on the ground as a bipartisan group of electeds figuring out how to do this policy work together. And I'm really proud that we were by six one and seven zero margins passing really really bold policy responses to the opiate crisis and early childhood issues. So we were literally on the ground doing bipartisan work at one of the most heightened periods of partisan tension in our country. And and that's another reason why I'm running right now is because I have seen with my own eyes that people in yeah. Western North Carolina can come together and do this work. And I think the lessons of local government are things that our federal government could benefit from right now totally. in a lot of ways.
2: That's what I was going to say. I think there's so much, so much interesting stuff to unpack there. First of all, like how the county works with towns and the mayors and all of that. If you can, like, explain some of that for us, that'd be super helpful. But even just hearing you kind of talk about these issues that you already worked on on the local level and how, like, you can get the stuff done there, but it also goes all the way back up to the federal level, which is what you're running for now. And just interesting how all of those issues, like, you can hit them at each level of government. I think that's such an important point to hammer home. But yeah, can you kind of explain how the dynamics of, you know, how county commission works with mayors with town councils, like there's towns within counties, like how how does that all work?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So within Buncombe County, where I am, we have municipalities that have their own elected bodies and and mayors, their own elected councils uh, and mayors, and then we have unincorporated areas. And so within the municipalities, those town councils, city councils, and mayors are doing the policy setting and budget setting work for their municipality. And a lot of that tends to focus on issues around planning and growth and development and infrastructure. And there is a tremendous amount of partnership between municipalities and county government, and, and there ought to be. You know, it's our job as elected to do our very best to work with other local elected state and federal electeds, because that's really when government can best serve the needs of people when you have that level of, of coordination and collaboration going on. So there's a lot of just ongoing dialogue and, and many opportunities for sort of joint collaborative work on major policy issues. Again, certainly during the pandemic, for, for the most part, we were in lockstep around setting local policies, but, but there was also divergences. There are times where at the County level, we would, for instance, have a mask order in place and a local municipality might decide that they did not want to have that for their municipality. So you do see that kind of divergence at times, but that level of just, you know, ongoing communication and work together is so key. And and to me, one of the greatest lessons, not just as an elected official, but certainly as a minister and an organizer is you just always got to keep talking even if you're disagreeing about 90% of things, the worst thing you can do is let the line go cold. And that piece of like, we just have to keep uh, the, the communication going, even, even when it's challenging, because we're going to need that from each other.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and our
3: community certainly needs that from us. And And that's sort of a piece of this as well that I think is so critical, especially in this time where there's such heightened and divisive and volatile political rhetoric and, and folks like Cawthorn are working overtime to try to divide people through lies, through toxicity, through fear tactics. And I think just being absolutely resolute in saying, we're not going to stop showing up for each other and we're not going to stop talking to each other and listening. And that's how we will find our way through this, through this path.
0: Totally. And I, which I feel like has become like the word of, I don't even want to say of 2022, like the last like few years, like everything's like, oh my God, that's so toxic. Her vibe is toxic. This thing's toxic. Like (laughs) that, I don't think I've heard this word used more than like since Britney Spears came out with the song (laughs) toxic. Like that is where we're at with that. But I do have like a silly question of like something you said, you mentioned like unincorporated areas. What is, what exactly is that? Like an who then manages those?
2: Wait, that's actually so funny you asked that too because this is such a tangent. Here we go. I love it. Um, <laughs> no, um, Amy Schumer came out with her like comedy tour list of all where she's performing. And there's like none in NorCal where I'm at except for this one town, Brooks, California. And I look it up and it, on my maps it says Unincorporated Community. And I was like, what is this? And why is she going there? But now I'm so curious because I had the same exact question from looking at that. <laughs>
3: Yeah, absolutely. So unincorporated is an area that has not created a town, basically. So it's often here, it's often places that are a little more rural and where there's not necessarily sort of a a population hub where there's been more development. And so there's not a basically a town or city government in place. So the county is the government there. So when we set policy at the county level, it applies in the unincorporated areas and then municipalities can decide to join those policies or not. And it's an interesting, you know, I mean, this, this could really become a tangent, but it's an interesting push-pull. Like there's a lot of reasons why folks don't want to incorporate into creating a town. They want more freedom. They don't want as much sort of government presence. They don't want to have to pay another layer of taxes, which is one thing that gets triggered. The argument against that is that as you see more growth happening, All of a sudden, you want stuff like sidewalks, and you want stuff like sewer lines, and the kind of infrastructure pieces that cities and towns are typically responsible for. So, those are some of the ways that that it that those issues sort of are playing out in this moment right now. Mm
0: -hmm. That is so interesting, and so I don't think New York has.
3: Oh, I don't know if New York (laughs) has many unincorporated areas. California probably, yeah, there are probably quite a few as you go up and down the coast. It's a few, like, yeah, it's,
2: like, a few hours away, and I told – there's a lot of rural areas areas in California, too, but I was, like, okay, I get it. Like, shout-out Brooks, California. Amy Schumer is coming, but, like, can you come to San Francisco, too? It's, like, the only – her only There must be a story there. I know. I'm so curious
3: well when (laughs) you get to the bottom of it let me know
2: (laughs) I will for sure I'm like okay start the investigating well moving on to and kind of diving deeper into you know you talked about your role as an ordained minister can you kind of shed light on on that role and kind of dive deeper as to how that's now kind of trickling into your platform and kind of how you want to approach this role potentially
3: yeah I mean just on a really personal level faith is my anchor and it's sort of a, a lens through which I understand the world and relationships, and 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 also it provides like a really clear set of instructions um, about how to how to live. And so, especially right now, you know, there's there's so much on on the line, there's so much at stake, country right now, and and you feel that. I feel that as a parent, I feel that as a person. You know, it's really it's the place I go to for calm and strength and hope, and 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 so that's just sort of a very personal piece of it you know, in terms of what does that mean, both being in elected office and then running for Congress, a couple of things. One is it is a really important place to build connections with folks. You know, what I just said is true for so many people across Western North Carolina. Faith is where they go to make sense yeah. of the world on the best days and the worst days. And, and, and I feel like, again, that's part of the way we find our, our, our way through this together is we figure out what are, what are those places where there's something in common? We may not always agree on exactly how you interpret a piece of scripture. We may be coming from different traditions, but that concept that faith is an anchor in your life is something that, that, you know, really resonates deeply. And so just from the level of connecting with people, which I think is such a huge piece of both how we serve an office and how we run, that you're always doing a lot of listening, that you're out there just being with people. That's yeah. a big, big piece of it you know and 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 faith is a place i go to when i have to make tough decisions not necessarily to dictate what the decision will be but to pray for clarity and and to pray that i can act act in a way that is best for the people i represent and so i so i bring it in in that way not not so much in the sense of you know of bringing faith teachings into into the actual right. work of it
0: yeah no and i think that's like an important clarification too yeah. of just sort of knowing where that falls within your platform and one of the things that I know is within your platform as well is that you are a pro-choice pastor and as someone from like literally like the north like i'm also sitting in freaking manhattan like i mean i she's a yankee i'm a full-on yankee like surrounded by a bunch of other liberals and so like for this and for i think other people around here too like what does that mean like what does that mean to be like a pro-choice pastor can you shed some light on that
3: absolutely so what it means is recognizing that the right to choose and the right to privacy that is the foundation of that is protected under our constitution. And and that's really clear. And I think something that's so critical especially when religious leaders are in elected office or running is that we're really clear about the difference between what our private faith beliefs are and what The Constitution protects for everyone. And we're really clear about not having anyone's religion be able to be weaponized to infringe upon or restrict other people's constitutionally protected rights and the right to choose is absolutely under attack right now in our country. So I would absolutely support federal legislation that wouldn't just codify Roe v. Wade in federal law, but would do the work we need to do to make sure people can access the reproductive health care that they need over the course of their lives. You know, for me, this is an issue that is between uh, a person and their doctor and the decision about whether to carry a pregnancy to term or end a pregnancy is often an incredibly difficult, painful one. And, you know, and, and I think when you talk with, a lot of people in private settings, they will recognize that. And part of our work as a country, and it's particularly keen time right now as we're waiting for the Supreme Court ruling, is, is just being absolutely clear that it is entirely possible to be a person of faith. I'm a Christian minister and I with within my religious beliefs, I support People having the agency to make choices about their own bodies. I think mm-hmm. that's critically important. And I also support the sacredness of life and know that within this issue, you know, there is a lot of pain and heartbreak for folks. And we also have to be able to talk absolutely clearly about the constitutionally protected rights that are there and that are under have been under systematic attack for decades and what we need to do to protect and shore up those protections. So when I tell you when I say pro choice pastor, that's what I'm talking about.
0: Totally. Mm-hmm. No, that makes That's a lot of sense. And I feel like the connection to the constitution, what that actually means in terms of your ability to have your own agency, I think is really key and often gets lost in sort of the conversation around yeah. whether you know pro-choice, anti-choice, et cetera. So I think that clarification is really, really helpful. And a lot of our listeners will definitely think so as well. And to continue on this sort of service, faith, empathy, this whole path, this whole conversation. You mentioned this a little bit before, but you're the executive director of Southern Equality. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you guys do?
3: Absolutely, yeah. So we launched the campaign for South Equality in 2011, and at that time, the the team that launched it, we had a vision of how the South the South could help achieve marriage equality in in our country by 2016. People thought we were absolutely insane and thought that maybe the soonest you'd see marriage equality in Mississippi would be 2030 if you were lucky. But what we saw on the ground and what I knew to be true as as someone who you know is proud to be from the South is that. What was actually happening in people's lives and in small towns across the South pointed towards a much different possibility. And we, for the last, you know, during that that period of time, we had the chance to help win marriage equality in Mississippi and in North Carolina, and work with thousands of people across the South to stand up and say we're ready for this, and really help accelerate the path to getting there. And what we do uh, each and every day is a mix of organizing. We're often in small towns and rural communities. We're sometimes at state houses, organizing across the South to defeat anti-LGBTQ legislation. We are unfortunately in a season of just extraordinarily cruel, unprecedented attacks on transgender youth. So there's a tremendous Mm -hmm. amount of work to do. And also just uh, doing incredible work from whether it's healthcare settings to schools, to working with artists across the South, to basically create communities where LGBTQ people can be themselves and and not have to leave home to be who you are, to love who you love. And that's what the work Mm -hmm. is about at the end of the day. And it has, you know, I've been on the ground for more than a decade organizing around these issues often again in in just amazing small towns and, and rural communities across the South, and it's at kitchen tables and in church basements and in libraries, and you're having conversations with, with folks who are saying, you know, I've I've lived in this town my whole life and I've I, I've never been out and and I'm ready to take that step. And walking alongside someone as they hold hands with their partner for the very first time, walking down Main Street in their hometown yeah. is incredible. Or someone who says, you know, my 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 kiddo is nine years old and she just came out as transgender. And, and I'm going to fight for the, for my kid and and tell me what I need to do. And that mom is showing up at the legislature to testify before subcommittees again and again and again to beat back a transports bill, for instance. It's just incredibly powerful. And and at the end of the day, um, it's so hopeful, right? I mean, you just see right there in front of you stories that speak to, I think, exactly this moment that we're in in American life, where it's like we are fighting for a country where there's a place where everyone belongs and fighting for a country where everyone has an opportunity and, and fighting to finally move past this long shadow of, of thinking that in America, we exclude people. And in America, we pass laws and policies to target children, to exclude them. You know, so we, I mean, it's a daily uh, honor to do the work and certainly a daily reminder um, of how powerful it is when people come together together and decide that they're going to sort of use their voices politically from the ballot box to the state houses and and insist upon this piece of saying, you know, this is our home and we're going to change the way things work here because because it's the right thing to do.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Moving forward, we recently posted a TikTok about Madison Cawthorn and one of the, you know, just absurd things he did. He said, and people were triggered. People had a lot of questions and a lot of questions for you, actually. And so we wanted to bring those into this conversation and bring in some audience audience questions for you okay great let's get into them because we got a few first we have kind of touched on this a little bit but what is the biggest issue facing your constituents and how will you work to resolve it
3: i think the biggest issue is an absolute crisis and absence of leadership we have not had someone representing our district in congress in a very long time who shows up every day to advocate for the priorities of Western North Carolina and do the critical work of passing policies that will deliver real results here. We didn't have it with Mark Meadows. We didn't have it when the seat was absent, was it vacant? And we (laughs) certainly don't have it now with Madison Cawthorn.
0: Yeah. Well, very good thought. And (laughs) onto the next question, which is what is your stance on student debt relief?
3: I support student debt relief. My wife and I both came out of out of um, school with debt and it's a monthly item in our budget. So in a very firsthand way, sort of know the pressure points of that. And the reality is it just so many people have been saddled with debt that um, makes it incredibly difficult for them to pursue the next stages of their career, their lives, buy that first home, create a family. So support a couple of things, support debt forgiveness programs. I support the reforms to the public service loan forgiveness program that the Biden administration has put in place and also support expansion of grants programs and support free community college. And, you know, all the different things we need to be doing to make sure that people have the opportunity to pursue their dreams, pursue education in a post-secondary way. And then also, you know, an issue that's really huge here, we have a really, really vibrant community college system in Western North Carolina and a lot of folks going for certifications and degrees and then going into say fields like advanced manufacturing. And I think when we're talking about you know, those, those higher ed opportunities, it's so important that we're talking about ways we keep expanding that, that plate of opportunities for folks as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, next one. What is a bill you would write when elected? So maybe like your first, the first one you want, or maybe like the one you're most excited about.
3: Okay, this is kind of nerdy, but the bill <laughs> I would first write is a companion bill to the bill that would guarantee universal pre-K at the federal level. That's something I'm a huge champion of. And the reality on the ground in places like Western North Carolina is that we actually need to go a little further to make sure a bill like that works. So this is a bill that would kind of create, it's like a national health service for pre-K teachers and staff. We have a shortage of licensed pre-K teachers on the ground. So it's really hard to move towards the goal of universal pre-K. This bill would basically provide tuition support, professional development support, a dignified wage, and advancement opportunities for folks who get the degree so that they can teach in pre-K settings and then promise to return to a place like Western North Carolina that has a teacher shortage crisis. So that is the first bill that I would be honored to work on. That's not nerdy. Are you kidding me? That's, that's just nerd. I mean, that's kind of nerdy. <laughs> I mean, I would be very excited to get to do that, and it's a little nerdy. I I love love it. yeah, I But that love piece, it. I mean, that's a huge piece that I think about a lot, right, is we have these very big, bold, aspirational policies yeah. that are so critically important. And then you get down to the on-the-ground perspective of what does it take to actually make this work in every district across the country. And the reality mm-hmm. is it takes different things in different districts. And so totally. that's sort of an orientation that I'm really interested in is, especially with some of these these big, big opportunities that are right there in front of us, if we can figure out how to how to, how to move the bills forward at the federal level, the companion programs and strategies that are required to make them work everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Definitely an important point.
0: All right, well, this one I think is pretty key for next steps and it's, how can we help her win if
3: we don't live in her state? Ah, I love it. Well, <laughs> so many ways. We, so this is a campaign that is rooted in Western North Carolina. And also the path to us winning involves folks being all in, from all over. And that means a couple of things. One, of course, it goes without saying, if folks are in a position to chip in, we would be honored to receive your donation and we'll put it to very good work. Uh, we're building the largest organizing program that Western North Carolina has seen for congressional race, and it will go right into that. We also have ways for folks to be part of that organizing work. We do regular virtual phone banks, and then we have folks coming um, into the district to knock doors with us. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities for that. You can go to jasmineforcongress.com click on the volunteer page and it'll walk you through those options and our team will get in touch with you. And And we have just been overwhelmed by the level of support that we're seeing from every county in the district, but also from folks all over the country. It's been incredible.
2: Yes. I we love actually that.
3: are doing a, a friends and family weekend of action from April 28th to May 1st. This is when early voting gets started ahead of our May 17th primary. So these four days are really critical period. And my sixth grade teacher is coming in to knock doors. Mm-hmm. My mom's coming in. So we're doing a really, really big push to have people there at early vote locations with us and out knocking the doors as, as early voting kicks off. So we do as many things like that as we can just to make it really fun and would love for people to join us.
2: Yes. I love that. And Just for everyone listening, I think it's also lost upon a lot of people that it's like, you can still help these campaigns that you're passionate about if you don't live there. And those are all awesome options. Next question. You kind of touched on this with the bill, but I don't know. Maybe maybe you have a different answer for this specific question. Is what policy area are you most passionate about?
3: That's a really tough one. I've talked probably at this point repeatedly, about the core policy issues in the district. I will say that how we're responding to the opiate crisis is something that just really, really hits home for me. My family has a background of, of addiction. So, you know, i just personally experienced the, the, the pain and the heartbreak of losing someone to addiction, but also how powerful it is to see someone in recovery. Mm-hmm. And so many people are, across the district have felt that. And Western North Carolina is a place that has been hit really hard by the opiate crisis. It's also a place where as a result of that, some incredibly innovative programs have been launched. We have here in Buncombe County, uh, a community paramedic program, which sends specially trained paramedics to any overdose call. So the first on scene are people who are specially trained in harm reduction strategies, mental health de-escalation strategies, uh, to work with someone to first save them from if, if an overdose through Narcan, but then also to immediately begin conversations with them about things like medication assisted treatment and, um, and, and how they can, if they're ready, take that first step towards towards getting the treatment they need. So I actually think Western North Carolina has a lot to offer other parts of the country because we've learned a lot about things that are working, but we also, you know, at that federal level have a lot we could benefit from, from federal programs that are really about uh, driving and supporting the kind of innovation and impact on the ground.
0: I love that for like a lot of reasons, but especially as it being an example for other states I feel yeah. like Maddie and I both being in California, and New York, often talk about like the example of like something happening in that state politically and it often being a catalyst for change other places. But I think North Carolina and to your you know point, what you're saying is becoming that as well. And I think that particular type of program is definitely something that should be replicated elsewhere. And I mean, definitely sounds like something New York could use. I'm it sure is. California yeah. too. Like, so that's super exciting. and to sort of see what is else to come in that category and that leadership. Love it. Can't wait to see more. But in the meantime, we have one last question. And this is, if you win and during your campaign, how do you reach out to people that are blindly supporting Cawthorn?
3: Well, first of all, you never stop reaching out and being ready to have the conversation. And, And one thing that's really important to share with folks is, Cawthorn's support is really fracturing. And that's part of why we see a way to win. A lot of people who maybe were willing to take a chance on him in 2020 are not willing to do that again in 2022. So let's start there. And we're talking with all those folks, but folks who are with Cawthorn and and will not leave Cawthorn, we have uh, a responsibility to keep those conversations going. And, you know, Western North Carolina is small towns and rural area. And so these aren't strangers. These are family members. These are neighbors. These are coworkers. And I think that's a, such an important piece. It's something that is absolutely true in, in the work I do with the campaign for Southern equality and and my ministry. There is here, here in the South, we know how to talk to our family members and our neighbors. We know how to be in relationship, even when we disagree uh, about a lot. And I think the path forward in our district helps show what the path forward can be in our country. Which is that we have to keep space at the table for everyone. We have to hold everyone accountable to the same standards of like you gotta tell the truth. You can't you gotta stop lying. Okay. You can't mm-hmm. keep lying. You can't keep threatening people. You can't keep talking about bloodshed. You gotta yeah. stop doing those things, but there's a chair and a seat at the table for you. And yeah. and and that approach is, I think, the medicine for what ails us in this moment where folks like Cawthorn are doing everything they can to divide people and keep us apart from each other. And when you're apart from each other, you know, you you, you, you don't see each other very clearly anymore, right? You stop listening to each other. You stop hearing yeah. each other. All that stuff that is the fabric of how we have relationships starts to break down when suddenly you're an other. And it's totally. to Cawthorn's advantage and to the advantage of folks like Trump as they prepare for the 2022 cycle to keep people separate. And it's our mandate to find a way to be together.
2: 100%. That is another just such important lesson to take across the country. I think we kind of get asked that a lot of like, how do you talk to your family or friends who don't agree with you or to talk about these political topics that are kind of contentious? And that is such a good answer. And I think you just have to keep you set the boundaries, but you always leave space to continue the conversation. I think that's really important. But to wrap everything up, can you kind of give everyone places they can find you where they can maybe sign up for phone banks or donate or you know, plug everything for us?
3: Absolutely. Yes. And thank you. And we'd love to hear from your listeners. If you go to jasmineforcongress.com, you will find all kinds of information about the campaign, issue stances, but you'll also see a tab that says volunteer. And if you fill that form out, our amazing organizing team will get in touch with you and be in, and, and figure out sort of what will work for you in terms of getting involved. You'll also see a donate button. Again, we'd be very honored to receive any level of support at all. And then we're across social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I am not on TikTok, which is probably in everyone's best interest. I do look at TikTok, but I'm not on TikTok, but you'll find us on Instagram You're all on TikTok. and Facebook and Twitter. And we do daily content there about policy issues, breaking news of the day, ways to get involved and stay connected. And we just appreciate people's health, help in spreading the word about this campaign. We want this campaign to be on people's radar screens as a, as a critical race and, and above all as a race that's winnable. This is not your generic race on the ballot in 2022. And a lot of the sort of broad brushstrokes that are used to characterize the 2022 cycle don't really apply when you land the plane in Western North Carolina and actually start talking to folks, right? So that's a big piece of what we're trying to spread is that message that this is a race we can win through the right kind of strategy and mobilizing people within the district, but also mobilizing people outside the district to be sending the right kind of resources and support here. So thank you for that opportunity.
2: Of course. Thank you for coming on. This was awesome Um, and it was so nice to hear about you and your platform and everything. So thank you so much. And our TikTok audience is super excited too. So
0: yeah. (laughs) Hi to to your TikTok
3: audience. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: Top stories of the week. You guys mask mandates have been ended for traveling here in the U.S. and people are scared but people are also excited. So where do you Where does everyone lie? Let's talk about it. So a federal judge's decision to strike down a national mask mandate was met with cheers on some airplanes, but also concern about whether it's really time to end. One of the biggest staples of the COVID-19 pandemic. So the major airlines and many of the busiest airports rushed to drop their requirements on Monday after the Transportation Security Administration announced it would enforce a January 2021 security directive that applied to airplanes, airports, taxis, and other mass transit. But the ruling still gave those entities the option to keep their mask rules in place, resulting in directives that could vary from city to city. So passengers on a United Airlines flight from Houston to New York, for instance, could ditch their masks at their departing airport and on the plane, but have to put them back on once they land at Kennedy Airport or take a subway. So all very interesting. But in a 59-page lawsuit ruling, U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell. In Tampa said the US Center for Disease Control and Prevention overstepped its authority in issuing the original health order on which the TSA directive was based she also said that the order was fatally flawed because the CDC didn't follow proper rulemaking procedures and so she's actually appointee of former President Donald Trump and said the only remedy was to throw out the mandate for the entire country because it would be impossible to end it for only the people who objected in the lawsuit interesting also,
0: to note, this judge was ruled by, let me get the exact name of, like, the exact association. But when she was nominated, they were like, no, 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 she's not qualified. Concept. And not in a way where it's like, oh, like, she's not qualified for sexist reasons, like, not qualified as in she has not been a lawyer long enough for this position to make sense. hmm so, I'm Plus just saying right that. There. Yeah, there's actually, shoot, I'm pretty sure it's NPR. I was reading it this morning. I'm going to try and throw that. Maybe that's our read of the day. Anyways, it's a whole debrief on her career and the sort of background on it. I'm gonna throw that in the uh, old description. Love. Love, love, love. But the wearing of masks aboard airplanes sparked online flame throwing. I am just imagining a literal circus, flamethrowing. You can't tell me flamethrowing and we're not at Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> I mean, or are we at like 11 in Miami? Like that's what I'm imagining, regardless. Anyways, that flamethrowing was happening between those who felt they were crucial to protecting people, cr- they being masks, uh, and those who saw it as unnecessary inconvenience or even o- government overkill. Some flight attendants found themselves cursing even attacked by passengers who refused to comply. Lawsuit was filed in July 2021 by two plaintiffs and the Health Freedom Defense Fund, described in the judge's order as a nonprofit group that opposes laws and regulations that force individuals to submit to the administration of medical products, procedures, devo- Whoa. and devices against their will. Republicans in Congress waged a running battle to kill the mandate. And if it does not come at any surprise, Florida Governor Ron, DeS- what did we name him again? Dick Santos Dick yes, uh, who's not directly involved in the case but has battled against many government coronavirus requirements, raised the ruling saying, "Both airline employees and passengers deserve to have this misery And Honestly, pretty calm tweet. As things go, I mean, this look, this I, I think this one's just—it's hard because we're all like, we're all over it, but yeah. I mean, it's also just interesting. I I I
2: don't know. I feel like if this happened, like, last month, I've been like, this makes sense. But now there's, like, kind of some surging of infections lately. I think hospitalizations are still low. So it's, like, I think we're getting to a point where people are getting COVID and it's – things are fine and we can live with it. Um, But the timing is a little bit interesting just because of that. But otherwise, I'm, like, I think – I'm not. I'm not mad at this, but I also have always been on the side of like masks are the easiest thing on earth, right? And literally are the an easy way to prevent the spread. And especially, you know, traveling is a huge spreader. So I'm. I wouldn't have been mad to keep wearing masks on planes, but it's just. I feel like also kind of used to at this point. Yeah. I
0: think the thing that always got me with this, it's just really confusing like i feel
2: like there's so many places i now just don't know like what the protocol is
0: and well in new york there's during... like
2: some so requirements still yeah there's like no, no requirements for masks here anymore and
0: i like went to during my wi-fi outage or whatever i did this little stroll to this vintage slash thrift shop in soho it's called 20 22 second no second street it's on howard and oh howard mm-hmm. Guys, look at our last post because Maddie's a fam pup. Uh, it's my Howard. nephew. He's literally the cutest and he is on our feed. So you're going to want to go check him out. But anyways, I was rolling in there and I always like have a mask on me and they were still doing full mask policy there. But then confusing because then I took myself out to lunch. Also another recommendation on this litany here. Luann's Wild Ginger. So freaking good. It's like vegan and which is kind of funny for me. But regardless, it's freaking good. And their sweet potato glass noodles are... Wow. Bomb. So anyways, I'm getting really derailed here. But just saying like there, then I didn't need it. It's just like, it's a lot of whiplash. Yeah. If someone just gives me the direct direction, I'm like, okay, cool. Like, whatever. I, I don't really give a fuck a- other than that. But yeah. I just feel like it's been so confusing from the beginning. And it hasn't gotten any less confusing. Like, no offense by the yeah. administration, but you haven't really helped make this any clearer. Right.
2: But nonetheless... I nice. that was a big story this week, so that's that on that. Let us know your let us know your thoughts, honestly. Um, but next so one is Florida cites likes. critical race theory references among reasons for rejecting 54 math textbooks. <laughs> Mathematics? Okay. So Florida's Department of Education announced on Friday that the state had rejected 54 math textbooks out of a total of 132 submitted, citing references to critical race theory among the reasons for the rejections. So the state agency said 28 textbooks had been rejected because they incorporated prohibited topics and unsolicited strategies, including CRT. Among some of the state's other reasons for rejecting the mathematical materials, the department cited the inclusion of social-emotional learning, SEL, and Common Core in the textbooks. So, SEL programming is intended to help students develop and manage healthy relationships and identities and manage their emotions and make responsible choices, among other aims, sounds super healthy. Some conservative activists have claimed it's a vehicle for CRT, um, according to the Washington Post, which is generally taught in institutions of higher education and centers the United States legacy of institutional racism and understanding past and current history. Also a necessary educational moment. But what, what else, Samantha? We got more from, from Dick Santis today. Well,
0: well, yours truly said, and yours truly being Dick Santis, it seems that some publishers attempted to slap a coat of paint on an old house built on the foundation of common core and indoctrinating concepts like race essentialism, especially bizarrely for elementary school students. What was that sentence? Uh, like. Literally, what was that? Uh,
2: I don't know, but it gave me a goddamn headache. I can tell you that much. Yeah, I'm going to start puking again. Not from the stomach flow. <laughs> <laughs> Manny's
0: going in. But the whole bloody thing is just ridiculous. Ridiculous. First of all, CRT, in my not so humble opinion, teach the fuck out of it. So Secondly, boiling. are you ki- math? Math. Math. I really don't understand, but, and this isn't Florida. Um, I'm going to throw this on our story because our friend Brian... Love Brian. He actually posted the clips from a similar type of conversation and rebuke. And Mallory McMurrow just freaking slaying the people that are opposed to CRT and all this shit. Wait, is this real? It's just...
2: Wait, which thing? This last... This is from Rep. Anna Eskamani. She's a Democrat. She... She tweeted, I wouldn't be surprised if Florida Republican leaders are preparing to ban algebra from high schools. So she said they object to the subliminal use of brackets as an indoctrination to the concept of inclusion. And they don't like the equal sign. They hate solving problems. (laughs) I just can't. Like, what fucking world are we living in right now? Like, there are so many. Can we just talk about, like, there are so many just insanely huge existential issues that we are facing, and this yeah. is the shit. This is the shit they're, they're focusing on, they're talking about. Going through math textbooks and picking little pieces that might remind them of critical race theory, which is also just such an important lesson to teach students yeah. about our very systemically racist history. Again, I don't see how that can be implemented into math books, but it seems like they're really just nitpicking. But it's just like, why are you, why, why this? Why is this where your efforts are? Like, go solve other world crises that we have, because there's a lot of them. Florida, this is what your your tax dollars are being spent on. So <laughs> I just, it's really interesting. And honestly. However, if they do want to ban algebra and want
0: to go back. I time, would co-sponsor that bill. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) although, you know, I actually was, like,
2: I'm trying to think which was my worst math subject, like, sub-niche. Honestly, though, my worst topic ever was chemistry. Like, I actually used to cry at my chemistry homework. It was the only class I had a tutor for. It was, like, the worst year of my life. Semester, I don't even remember high school. But chemistry is a lot I of math, to so that makes sense it's on brand oh a thousand percent you're
0: like moving all the thingamabobbers half lives? Remember, remember that God, i forgot about the
2: isotopes <laughs> isotopes okay anyways next story is sam yeah, bring us home last story all right
0: republicans hail a proposal to impose committee term limits on both parties i also explained the story to my mom last night and she was like so what's new i can't get the tv worked to work <laughs> and i was like let me tell you what i've been reading today well guess what i have a, <laughs> a podcast
2: so i'll tell
0: you <laughs> So, proposal by House Republicans to add term limits for committee chairs and ranking members to House rules if they win back control of the the chamber. Go vote. Go register vote. Make sure your friends are registered. Vote. Make sure your fans vote. Anyways, is getting some enthusiastic support from GOP lawmakers with a side of hesitation. Mm, Side of hesitation. Sounds like me trying to figure out which salsa I want at my local burrito spot. Anyways, Punchbowl News reported Monday that the House GOP... Maddie's looking at me like, can you not? eye, everyone. No,
2: it's it's not you. I'm just like not in my body this week. <laughs> like I genuinely am having a hard time even getting words out.
0: <laughs> but, she's like, there's like Maddie and then there's like a little, like a Maddie like spirit like floating above Maddie. I don't like, even it's... know
2: if the spirit's here. Like I think the spirit left me and like she'll come back like in a few days when I'm feeling better. You puked her up. Yeah, it's fine. she's in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> It's fine. I wish this stomach full on nobody. Except Ron DeSantis, maybe.
0: (laughs) Oh, Lord have mercy. Okay, anyways, moving on to Punchbowl News, reported Monday that the House GOP is considering such a change, which would block several senior Democrats from keeping their top committee spots next year, and force other Democrats out of coveted top slots. The House Republican Conference already has a long-time internal rule that prohibits members from serving more than three consecutive terms as a ranking member or chair of a committee, but the House Democratic Caucus does not limit how long a lawmaker may serve in those roles on a panel. The proposal won praise from Rep. Tim Burchard, Republican from Tennessee, who backs legislation to amend the Constitution to impose term limits on all members of Congress. Yo, Tim, we agree. We're together. That's some bipartisan shit right Bi-person there. Bipartisan bell, baby. Love that, Timmy boy. Yes. Love that. Absolutely. Absolutely agree with that.
2: Mm-hmm. And he also said, putting term limits on committee leadership ensures we're putting the best players in these powerful positions every single term. Republicans have been doing this for years, but Democrats have been content to hand these roles to whichever members have been in Washington longest. Top Republicans have had doubts in the past about the conference's three-term rule for chairs and ranking members. In the last congressional cycle, the GOP's term limit rule was seen as a factor that contributed to a wave of House Republican requirements from top committee members who have been blocked from another term. So
1: I am all for this.
2: this. I You know, I'm agreeing with these Republicans. I think it's the changing out of power is very, very important. I mean, there's arguments on both sides. Obviously, like those with the most experience being in these leadership roles in Congress, you know, has its benefits. But at the same time, I think we really do need refreshes of power, refreshes of ideas, refreshes of movements with our leadership in Congress. So, I am on board for this and yeah, maybe Democrats do need to be better at flushing people out and getting new faces in. So, you know, I'm, I am hoping that this, this goes somewhere. I will say we love yeah, a bipartisan too. moment.
0: Absolutely love a bipartisan moment. And I just, I think one of the articles that I was reading on this was really pushing the fact that there is, you know, there is young blood on the Dem side and Well, sometimes, obviously, they get the media bites, the media moments. There's so many of them that then have to, you know, go for re-election time and time again to try and move up the ladder for these positions. And that doesn't necessarily equate to getting shit done or having new ideas and whatever. So Mm -hmm.
2: yes, yes, yes. Well, I can't believe we made it through this episode because, again, crisis mode has been in full effect this week for Samantha and I but Bring me alarms. we had to get you <laughs> <laughs> we had to get you guys this episode because jasmine is iconic and we've been waiting to get her episode out so i hope you guys enjoyed go get your merch you can go to the link in our episode description same with girl on the gov brand ambassador program internship all of that is linked in episode description so go check it out follow us on social media go see look at our pinterest follow us there pin some stuff However, Pinterest works. But that is it for this week. And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday.